this morning's sermon, we're not going to be focusing on any particular text. In fact, we're going to look at a bunch of them. But So you can either just listen or you can race around if you'd like. Let's pray. Father, we are severely dependent. We are in desperate need of you and your grace your help in every way. Please, Father, I ask that you would help us to know you, know your ways, and understand ourselves better. Please convict us by your spirit. Help us to see our own selves in the light of your word. And, and may, we, may we know your presence in a very powerful way. Please, Father, for we ask this in Christ. Amen. Looking out at the state of the, that the country's in currently, would you see, or do you say, rather, there's a reason uh, to be concerned as you look around? Does it cause any concern as you read the news headlines and hear what's going on in this country? I hope so. There's great reason to be concerned. But how about to the church as well? When you look out the landscape of the church, is there reason to be concerned when you look at the church, when you see what's going on? Of course. There's great reason to be concerned. And uh, yet in all of that, in light of all that's going on around us, I think there's an even more pressing concern that is connected to us. Because our culture... And the many churches around us, and as they become more and more corrupt, what happens is that we can become more and more deceived about our own condition. And here's why. When you compare yourself, or we compare ourselves as a church to the culture and the unfaithful churches around us, we can begin to shine like the morning sun in all its glory. Wow. That's what happens often when we compare, especially when that comparison that we're comparing against pales in comparison. And the worse it gets, the better we look. And the better we look, the more confident we become. And and there lies the trap. We fail to see our own problems. And the worst of all is that we might even fail to, to recognize that, hey, wait a second, God is even no longer among us. And this happens. And when God is no longer among us, lives are no longer being transformed. The city's no longer being transformed. The nation's no longer being transformed. But what's happening is that there's an increase in corruption, a constant increase in corruption. And as long as we feel good about our righteousness compared to the evil in this world, we aren't ever going to know the presence and power of God. And sure, we can assume, can't we? We can assume that God is with us. We can assume that because we seem so much more faithful. But it isn't because we can experientially tell that God is with us. We talk about entering into God's presence here today. But those are simply objective statements. They're objective statements 
not experiential realities. Because when God shows up in the Bible, we don't remain the same. Communities don't remain the same. Nothing remains much the same. God, when he shows up, he transforms the place. And this is what we see in the Bible throughout. So we shouldn't think that God um, showing up is also just some experiential thing that happens in weird places at weird times. It's kind of like the anomaly. Occasionally, yes, we can never predict it. We never know what's going to happen, but God will at some, in some cases at some times show up. Because from the very beginning, God has always planned and wanted to dwell among his people. This is what God has always wanted to do. I shared some of this, uh, what I'm about to say, last Friday before the spiritual renewal weekend. But I wanted to go a little deeper in this whole idea. Because from the very beginning in the garden, God, there was a place that God created where God would dwell with his children. As G.K. Beale commented in his book, God Dwells Among Us. He said, Eden is presented as a sanctuary in a place where God dwells. Even the seemingly casual mention of God walking, he quotes, walking in the Garden of Eden, which it says in Genesis 3.8, is rich with connotations that suggest God's presence in the temple. In Leviticus 26, the Lord promises that he will, quote, listen to the language, walk among them and be their God. In Deuteronomy 23, the Lord commands the Israelites to keep their camp holy because he, quote, walks in their midst and in their camp. When David plans to build a permanent house for God in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord reminds him that I have been walking about in a tent for my dwelling. In similar manner, the Lord is walking in Eden. Why? Because Eden itself was the temple and dwelling place of God, end quote. Pretty fascinating that the term walking, Adam was walking with God in the cool of the day. God was walking in the garden, yet this walking is exactly what God has done throughout in his temple and sanctuary. So the language of God walking in the garden in the cool of day is language of God dwelling in his house. And actually, Ezekiel 28 explicitly refers to Eden as a temple when it calls it the holy mountain and sanctuary of God. But because Adam and Eve sin, we know what happened. They were cast out of God's garden sanctuary. Cherubim were put at the entrance with a flaming sword so that they could not enter in. However, God was not done with us. We have a we have this amazing story, this unfolding story of God not being done with us. He had a plan to cleanse us, to wash us, to sanctify us, so that we could become holy again and be brought back into his glorious house. We, we begin to see this unfold in the tabernacle. God commanded Moses to build a tent for him. And this tent was going to be among his people, in the midst of his people because he wanted to dwell in their midst. And we could spend a whole lot of time looking at the, the ornamentation even of this temple. The fact that cherubim on the curtain between the holy place were placed there. He wanted them embroidered. That one symbol, that the cherubim he wanted embroidered 
as, as what? As guards, as guardians to the most holy place, saying that you're not allowed in here and you can't go past because where else do we hear about the guardians of God's sanctuary? Where did cherubim block the way in? Back in the garden, God did that. And again, as it says in Leviticus 26, 12, he says, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And this wasn't just an objective reality, but it meant that the cloud and the fire was going to be among them and blessing them from top to bottom if they remained holy to him. It meant crazy things like the soles of their sandals not wearing out as they traveled. It meant their enemies being defeated. It meant their trees and cattle doing, doing exceptionally well. But most of all, it meant God giving them his joy, his love, and his peace, his presence among his people. But as good as these were, if Israel, if Israel wanted to draw near to God, do you realize that they could only get to the entrance, and that through the blood and the sacrificial blood of an animal. The best they could do was get into the other outer courts, and that was it. And once Israel settled in the, land, in the land, the temple was replaced by the tabernacle. And the temple was twice as big as the tabernacle, and twice as glorious as the tabernacle. It was amazing. And God dwelt there in the midst of his people on Mount Zion in the cloud and the fire. His special presence among his people. But as glorious as the temple was, we know God wasn't done. God wasn't done with the temple. He just didn't want to dwell in this place in the midst of his people. He was up to something else. More than they could ever think or imagine. They didn't even fully comprehend. It was going to improve in a significant way. Zechariah chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And we know that God did this. God came and dwelt among his people. As John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But you know, you know something? As great as that was, that Jesus came and dwelt among his people, that God fulfilled the promise of Zechariah, Jesus his, himself said something greater was going to happen after he left. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 14, Jesus says this, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he continues in verse 14. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So with the coming of the spirit, God did something remarkable. God 
was going to dwell in his people. Not just among his people, in his people. Not in a temple made by hands, but in a temple of his people, the temple of his people. We are the actual temple of God that he wanted to dwell in all along. Which the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the temple only pointed to. So Jesus came to prepare us, to sanctify us, to wash us, and to make us holy, uniting us to himself. Why? So that God could come and dwell in us. Now remember, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and the temple, how was God's presence manifested among them? It was in the cloud and the fire, the fiery cloud. And this is how they knew. They could tell that God's presence was there. The fire came down from heaven and rested on these places. And yet, in the new covenant, what happens? The fire comes down from heaven and rests upon the heads of the disciples and fills them. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what is happening at this moment? The fire of God's glorious presence comes down upon the temple but not the temple on Mount Zion, the temple that had gathered together in the upper room, the temple of God's new people. And this was huge. This is huge. God did what he'd planned from the beginning. He came to dwell among among his people in a way that's even better than he had before. So now the power and awesome presence of God is amongst his people. And we know that the ultimate, what's the ultimate consummation of all this? In the beginning, it starts in a garden where God's sanctuary is. And at the end, in Revelation chapter 22, at the very end, what does it say? We find out that this, it's the garden temple where God dwells in the midst of of his people. This is the culmination. This is the the great end that we look forward to. And from now till then, what we have to deal with is our flesh, the world, and the devil. And we have to long for and await the resurrection so we can know that glorious end. But in the meantime, God dwells in the midst of his people. Yet there's a problem. A problem because we know that God dwelling among his people in a special way does not always describe the reality of what is going on. Question, why is that? Because like I've said so often lately, God's presence and power remaining with his people is contingent, is dependent, dependent upon the humility and holiness of his people. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean one sin and he's out of there. He's gone. That's it. But it does mean that one sin, and if it's not dealt with, if we don't deal with it, it makes a difference. Because God starts to deal with us. 
As Deuteronomy 23, 14 says, Because the Lord God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that you may see that you may not see anything in I'm sorry, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So the Lord God is among you and you must remain holy because what will happen is that this, so if you don't, he will pull away from you. Now God had given them a clear way to deal with sin. He is in no way saying, if you guys aren't absolutely perfect and, don't, and, and if you do anything wrong, I, I am after you. He doesn't say that, does he? You know, he gives them a way to deal with sin, a way to deal with uncleanness. Through the washing of water and the sacrificial system, this is how you deal with sin. But they needed to obey that. They needed to humbly deal with their sin, or he would deal with them in judgment. We need to understand that God did not expect them to be perfect. But he did expect them to repent and deal with their sin appropriately. In fact, as was read this morning, if they remained stiff-necked and kept on turning away from him and kept on rebelling against him, you remember, did you remember hearing this morning, Exodus chapter 33, he said that he, they were a stiff-necked people and that he was not going to dwell in their midst, he was not going to go with them. And Moses pleaded with them. He said, oh God, You must go with us. You must go before us. You've promised. And he held God to his promises. And he pleaded with God. And God said, okay, I'll go with you. But God was afraid of consuming them. Because they're so stiff-necked. They constantly would turn away from him. This this analogy of a person who's stiff-necked, if you ever, it comes from the the, uh, horse riding uh, background, if you're familiar with it. If you try to turn, if a horse stiffens its neck and you try to turn that horse... And it, it locks up its neck, and if you, it has a bit, and it bites down on the bit, and you, you try to pull it, and it refuses, it resists. That horse is being stiff-necked. It just it will not follow the bridle. You pull on the reins, and it will not turn its head. And that's what they're like. God's pu- constantly pulling on them, but they, they stiffen their necks. They're stiff-necked people, always wanting to do their own thing, not obey the Lord. And, you know, this, uh, as I've, we've looked at time before, we, we have to understand that God's presence among us as people, this is the special gift of, of being God's people. This is what distinguishes us from the rest of the nations. And this is what Moses said in Exodus chapter 33. How will the nations know? How will the people see and know that we're any different? What makes us different? What makes us distinct? What makes us your people is that you're here with us in our midst. That's what makes us different. Otherwise, what are we but a social club? that honors this person they call God, that reads out of this book, that sings a bunch of songs and prays to this name. But what makes us distinct? What makes us different? It's God's presence among us. Because when he's among us, everything is different. There is nobody in the planet earth that is like us. There is power. There's transformation. Lives are literally transformed. They don't remain the same. When God shows up, when God's among his people, his people are different radically. And the world looks and sees and goes, hmm, 
Moses says the nations, how will the nations know? They won't know that we're any different unless you show up. You know, and it's, again, we've looked at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We could say, you know, things are so, they're different in the new covenant, and they are. But sin still has the effect. It has the effect, it affects God's presence in our midst. As you might recall, in the case of the Ephesian church, they had lost their first love. And Jesus was about to remove their lampstand if they did not repent. In regards to the church of Laodicea, as we looked at a couple times, Jesus said that this was a church that was lukewarm and complacent, but they thought they had it all together. Jesus said to them that he was on the outside knocking, and that if they didn't repent and come and turn to him and buy from him what they needed, that he would be against them. In the case of the Corinthians, I haven't used this analogy before, but God was among them for judgment because of their sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that this is why many of them were sick and some had fallen asleep. Interesting, but they didn't fully even understand that. So it wasn't just an Old Testament thing that God would pull back and bring judgment upon his people. It's a New Testament reality as well. Whenever God's people become proud, presumptive, careless, apathetic, indifferent, especially in regard to sin, they experience judgment and discipline. But here, the good news is, as God's people humble themselves, deal with their sin, turn to him and seek them with their whole heart, he shows up with his presence and power and blessings return. But you know what scares me? What scares me is that God's people usually don't notice until something big happens. They usually don't notice it going on. It usually takes a whole lot of suffering or great loss and tragedy before it's like, hey, wait a second. Famine, pestilence, subjugation under enemies. Israel, the history of Israel is just loaded with this. And then finally, they would come to their senses. They'd have like the aha moment, and then they would turn to God and cry out with their whole hearts. And here's the the scary part in regard to us. It's easy to think that God is with us and among us because, as I spoke at the beginning, we're doing the right things. We have good theology. We honor the scriptures. We're committed to our families, and we're very conservative politically. And when we compare ourselves to the world and the church around us, it makes us see a big gap. It makes us feel really good. But that's a dangerous place to be. Because we believe, in light of that, hey, We're super faithful. God must be pleased with us. Yet, the question is, is his presence powerfully among us? And that's a question that we we have to wrestle with. Is your life being transformed? Is God in our midst? And you can tell, not not, not a statement objectively, but something you know experientially based on your own life. Our lives being transformed. Can you see God moving among us? Another way to answer this question or to think about this is ask ourselves, ask yourself the question of whether or not do you really love God? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
That's a tough question. Because really it amounts to this. Is God the number one passion, desire, and longing of your heart? Does your soul long for him above anything and everything else? Does your mind fixate on him and seek first his kingdom in all things? Does all the strength that you have for him and, um, and pursue after him, is it manifested in practical ways in your life? And I think when we're honest about that one question, do I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I'm here to say, oh, wow, that's not a reality. But here's the worst of it. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't, does it bother you? Does it bother us? Does it bother us that much? Sure, we can say it. Sure, we can think it. Sure, we say, yeah, you know, man, I'm uh, not much going on here, but whatever. Now, that's, that's a really bad place to be. Because at the very least, a good place to be is troubled. Is to be troubled about our own hearts. To be troubled about our own situation. To be troubled about our own lack of love for God and for others. Concern for others. We could go look at, look at not just the love for God, but let's look at love for others and look at how we reach out and serve and give and bless our neighborhoods, the people around us, our friends, our families, our spouses, our children. And then I think in all across the board, we, find our, we should find ourselves absolutely convicted. The worst is if we find ourselves absolutely indifferent. A great place to be is a place where you begin to be bothered troubled and disturbed. A bad place to be is when you don't care. It would be a good place to be for us to fall on our knees and say, Father, I hate my heart. I hate what I've become. I hate what's going on in me. I hate where I'm at. Oh, Lord God, have mercy on me. And yet, often what it takes is massive tragedy. Before we're awakened, before we wipe the sleep from our eyes and say, what's going on? We need to become like Moses. We need to be more like Moses and say, oh, Lord God, if you do not go with us, if you're not going to be in our midst, oh, Lord God, I don't want to go myself. We're not going to move. Hunger and thirsting after God, wanting Him to be amongst us powerfully. Waken me, O Lord. Trouble my heart. Bother me. Shake me from my complacency and apathy. And you know, when God does this, great things begin to happen. Great things begin to happen as God stirs, as God moves, and God begins to work in our midst. In 1995 at Wheaton College, God showed up at chapel. Here's how it was told by Dan Hayes. On Sunday evening, March 19, 1995, two students from Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas, spoke during a weekly student-led worship service at Wheaton. The two students shared what God had done in their lives during recent times of revival at their campus and at other schools, said Wheaton professor Tim Bower. 
After they spoke, there was no exhortation or manipulation. The professor said there was no attempt to try and force a repeat experience of what had happened at Howard Payne. But immediately, students began to come up to the microphone and confess sin, Bauer said. The confession was deep. It was painful. God really did a work of breaking people. The service had begun at 7.30 p.m. Sunday, and it did not end until 6 a.m. Monday. Normally, about 400 students attend the service. That Sunday, about 700 came. It was difficult to know how many attended because many uh, who were there left and went back to get their roommates and friends. The beautiful thing was that when a person would confess sin, 20 to 50 students would gather around the person and pray for them. There was a real spirit of love and acceptance, Bower said. You could not point a finger at anyone else because all of us there had been stripped bare before the throne of God. When the students broke up at 6 a.m., they agreed to meet again Monday night, March 20th. They started at 9.30 that night and attendance climbed to more than 1,000. The seats of Pierce Chapel were filled and students stood two and three deep along the walls. As on Sunday night, the service began with praise and worship. Then came more deep confession. Students were given an opportunity to throw away things that were hindering their walk with God or that might trip them up in the future. Many went back to their rooms and returned with secular music, discs, pornography, alcohol, credit cards, and other items. One student even brought a rose, apparently symbolic of an unhealthy relationship. The meeting lasted until 2 a.m. The next night, about 1,350 students gathered in the the church's 1,500 seat sanctuary. And after a time of praise and worship, confession of sin followed again. On Thursday, it was time to celebrate. The students, 1,500 of them, held a praise and worship service that raised the roof, the professor said. It was glorious. It was a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. End quote. That's what happens when God shows up. That's what happens when God works in our lives. He awakens us. The dust falls off. The bones are rattling and stirring and they come alive. And sin gets dealt with because we're in the presence of the holy. And sin gets dealt with and and then joy comes. Joy follows. Overflowing joy. The presence, the peace, the power of God is known and realized. Do you realize that God wants to dwell among his people? That is his delight and plan from the very beginning. But we also need to realize the reason he doesn't is because his people sin and their failure to deal with it. And so one of the things we have to do is look at ourselves at a church and ask the question, is God powerfully amongst us? And if, he's, if we say no, then we need to say, oh God, search me and know me. Oh God, I hate who I am and I hate what I become. I hate where I'm at. Please have your way with me. Expose in me. Show me. If there be any sin in me, be anything in me, reveal it to me, oh God. I desperately want your presence. I want to be in your presence. And I want you to be work powerfully in my life and amongst us as a church. Because unless he goes with us, what's the point? Unless he's in our midst, who cares? 
That's all that matters. That's the only thing that will distinguish us from the rest of the world is that God is with us. And that's what I want. And may that be our prayer. Amen.